0: If you want to open your bibles or your laptops or your iPads or your phones to Luke chapter 16. Last week we looked at a parable. The parable of the the wedding feast. And really the wedding feast parable kind of ended with that guy that came in on the third invitation, but he wasn't dressed in the right garment. And he was cast out. And we talked about how that right garment wasn't necessarily somebody standing at a door telling him to put on a suit and tie. It was the garment of the righteousness of Christ. That there is no other garment that will get us into the wedding feast than the righteousness of Christ. Today I'm going to look at another story. I call it a story. Some people consider it a parable. I do not believe it's a parable. But the point of it doesn't really matter what you think. But I think in this story, Jesus never ever used personal names that I could see in any other parable. And here he refers to a man and gives him a name. You know, one thing about our Christianity and our faith, our, 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 our spiritual life. We as Christians, especially as you know, if you've been in it a long time and, and you've kind of let the fire go a little bit dim you know, the reality of the Word of God and the reality of the Holy Spirit, the reality of the love of Jesus, the reality of your call, your commissioning, your giftings, your talents, your destiny, it can kind of just kind of go on a back burner. And i, I just being struck more and more as I'm studying these different things that how real it all is and how critical it is that we understand how real it all is. We do not and cannot be a church that's lukewarm. We need to be a church where the Holy Spirit is welcome, where the name of Jesus is lifted up, the Word of God is honored and spoken, and it's something that we live out day by day. We need to because lives depend on it. Unsaved souls' very lives are at stake, and we have an important commissioning to do something about it. You know, death is one of those things that people talk about. Usually with fear. Or usually when a tragedy occurs, and and you start to hear all kinds of. At the time we understand, but they're silly things. Even Christians start saying things that are just dumb. Oh. He or she's an angel in heaven. Why would you wish somebody to be an angel in heaven when they can be so much more than that? They're not an angel. They don't become an angel. They don't grow wings. They're either in the presence of God, worshiping Him, or they're in hell. One or the other. Oh, there's spirits here. I I can feel them guiding me. No, you can't. If there's a spirit guiding you, it's the Holy Spirit. Or another spirit. Why would we want their spirit to run around here on earth in limbo if they were a Christian they are in the presence of Almighty God? We say such dumb things about death. Then we sometimes hear people say what, what happens to them if they're not an angel what happens to them when they die? What happens to me when I die? Is there a heaven or hell? It's amazing when someone dies everybody hopes there's a heaven. And we all just Clover our minds and hope there's no hell. There is. There is a heaven. Praise God. There is a hell. And then you hear this question sometimes asked, which is the title of my message. How can a loving God send somebody to hell? Universalism is breaking out amongst churches and pastors who used to preach the real gospel. And now they're talking about this gospel where everyone's saved because God loves everybody so much. Well, He does love everybody. But they aren't all going to be saved. The Bible is true. There is only one way to the Father, only one. And that's through Jesus Christ, His Son, and what He did in dying on that cross and what the Father did by raising Him from the dead and turning around and offering to us that gift of salvation. We'll talk about whether God sends anybody to hell or not in just a few minutes, but it's really a bad question that starts out with a wrong premise. We're going to read I'm going to read this story quickly and then we're going to go back. I'm going to start at verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is this great chasm, fixed. In order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able. And that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone is risen from the dead. There's kind of two scenes. The first scene is kind of a short scene in this story. The first scene is just in the first couple verses. And we see in this scene that there is this rich man dressed in all of the fanciest clothes you can imagine. The splendor, living gaily, wonderfully, happily, carefree life, eating at this this table of all kinds of foods. And we see that a little later he calls him Father Abraham because this is a wealthy Jew, a wealthy Jewish person. And then we see we're introduced to Lazarus. Lazarus is poor. And it says he is laid, not laying, it says he's laid at the gate. If you study that word, he's laid there, he's taken there and he's placed there. He's helpless. And the only thing ministering to him are dogs licking his wounds. His sores. The ulcers on his legs. And it says he's laying there just wishing he could eat the crumbs that fall off from this rich guy's table. And then they both die. And it's interesting, but I can't elaborate on it because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's interesting to me that when the rich man dies, he's buried. And it doesn't even say that about the poor man. All it says is he dies and he's carried to Abraham's bosom. Now, there's a lot of conjecture and stories out there that, I, that could very well be true that the poor weren't even buried. In ancient Jerusalem, they were taken outside the city gates and thrown out with all the garbage and rubbish and all the wastage from the animal sacrifices and Gehenna were burned. Whatever happened to his physical body, we know what happened to his spirit. He was immediately taken by angels. To Abraham's bosom. What is death? Death can easily be defined as a separation. That's what it is. It's a separation. Physical death, our spirit is separated from our physical body. Lest the Lord comes back soon, we're all going to die. The physical death. Every single one of us will experience a separation of our spirit from our physical body. And then there is also spiritual death which is a separation also of our spirit from the Spirit of God for those that don't know Him. What a horrible death that one is. At our physical death, our spirit is immediately taken one place or another. The moment a Christian dies, our spirit is separated from our physical body and we are in the presence of God. When an unsaved person dies, their spirit is also separated from their physical body and is transported to Hades or hell, whatever you want to call it. A place of torment where their spirit is in torment instantly, in torment. And the second part of the story, the second act, if you would, is about what happens after death. And we see, as this takes place, the third character in the story is introduced, and that's Abraham. The rich man called him Father Abraham. Abraham was considered to be the father of all the Jewish nation. So they would call him Father Abraham. And immediately when Lazarus dies, it says that his spirit is taken into the bosom of Father Abraham. This this place that would be a picture of comfort, security, a safe, glorious place to be. And at the same time, to his shock, This rich man finds himself in Hades. And wow, would you like to know what went through his mind. And I think we get a picture of at least some of what went through his mind right away. This man, this rich man's destiny is not what he expected. He might have been a Jew but his calloused heart had, had caused him to, to not understand what the law and the prophets had been speaking of. Many, many of the Old Testaments were saved and they were saved by faith. According to the word. But he hadn't received that word. He was wealthy, rich, comfortable, fancy clothes, lots of food, really nice camel. Well, maybe not. But if there would have been, he'd have had the best one. But because of his self-sufficiency, he was unresponsive to God. Probably thinking, "I'm—I've got it made. I'm a pretty good guy. After all, I'm a Jew, father Abraham, and look how I've been blessed with wealth and prosperity. I'm probably in good shape. I don't need God." And in a moment, he realizes his thoughts have been answered. God gave him exactly what he wanted. I don't need God. I'm not interested, God. No thanks. I'm okay. Look at me. I'm doing all right. Besides, my heritage, I'm in. Father Abraham... I don't want you in my life. God gave him exactly what he wanted. God grants his wish just like he does for every single person that rejects his invitation. This is the first point. God doesn't send anybody to hell, no one. It's a wrong question on a false premise. God desires that all would be saved. That's his goal. He desires it so much that he eventually sent Jesus to die on a cross that all might be saved. The invitation is there. But those that reject it choose to reject God. And he gives them what they want. Some people will say that doesn't sound fair. It's absolutely just. In God's eyes. But what if they haven't heard? They've heard. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. There's no excuse. God has designed His creation in such a way that all you have to do is look around and go, Wow! Wow! If that's all they know, it's wow. They're only responsible for what they see and what they know. If they've never heard one word preached to them, in other words, creation is enough for them to have faith to be saved. Amazing. He loves us so much that He made it that easy and that obvious. And yet, many, many, many reject it. Rich man probably never really thought seriously about the consequences of rejecting. Just like most people nowadays don't. In their mind, heaven, hell, whatever. They're probably like me in my days when I would laugh and joke about hell and say, man, are we going to party down there? It's just going to get better than here. Hard to believe anything could be better than the ballot and liquor store. (laughs) For you I might have been somewhere else, one of mine. How stupid, foolish, arrogant, prideful we are. And more than anything else, deceived. We're deceived. But the truth is out there. And God is saying it's there for all to see and all to receive. And we see instantly, according to Jesus' own words in this story, he's instantly in agony and torment. Now I don't pretend to understand how our spirit can be in agony and torment. I don't understand all that. I I don't understand. He he gives us a physical picture here, but this guy's physical body was still in a tomb. But he's helping us to understand as humans, to think with our human way of thinking. And, And this guy is instantly in torment. Within seconds, milliseconds, of dying and having physical separation from his body, his spirit is in agony complete agony. And almost immediately, it looks like, he begins the dialogue with Father Abraham. It says he looked up and a far distance. Now there could be a lot of teaching on Hades and all this stuff, and I, but it doesn't give us a lot of that here. So I'm going to stay with it with what it says like Pastor Bob said this morning. We'll just stick with the story. But he says he looks up from his place of agony and he looks up and he sees Father Abraham and there's Lazarus in his bosom, in his arms, in that place of comfort and security. And he cries out to him. Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into the cool water because I am in agony in this fire. And why he does he address Abraham as Father Abraham? I've said it before. I think he's like, this is a mistake. I don't belong here. How could I possibly have ended up here? Boy, do I think that's going to be a refrain that's going to be going throughout hell. How did I get here? I was a good person. I did good things. I was blessed on earth. God must have loved me. must have cared. And here I am. And he goes, Father Abraham, there's been a mistake. Help me here. I am of the right lineage. I'm a Jew from God's chosen people. I did all the right things. As a Jew, I did all the right things. How could I be here? His social status didn't do him any good. All his wealth did him no good. It didn't make one bit of difference what family lineage he came from. All that mattered was what did he do with the knowledge of God that he had been exposed to. And he rejected it. And he's in agony. You know, we, we see some stories or some teaching in the New Testament about Jesus talking to different groups of people. A couple of them can almost haunt you when he says, depart from me. And he says, why? Well, because you never ministered to those around me. You never fed them. You never clothed them. You never cared for them. You never warmed them. Because you didn't do it to the least of them. You didn't do it to me. And he tells those people, go away. Depart from me. Another place that's even more more concerning or should be concerning, there's this group of people who says, he says, go away. I never knew you. And they're responsible. What are you talking about? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And he looks at him, and this isn't a whole lot of gray in this. He says, "Depart from me. I never knew you." It didn't matter what they did. How could they? How could they be involved in a miracle? How could they cast out a demon? God will honor His name in spite of the person sometimes. It's not what we do. It's what we believe and who it is we believe in. And boy, this this rich man instantly looks to Abraham. Can you fix this? And he says no. And In Luke 16, verses 25 and 26, it says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus is bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, now besides all of this, you notice, you're looking up and you're seeing us, but do you see this chasm between you and us? And when you read it, you might miss a couple things. It says there's this chasm that has been fixed between us. Meaning it's been put there intentionally with a purpose. It has been put there. There's this chasm that's been put there to make sure that no one can cross going either direction. There is no purgatory you can pray your relatives out of. They're either in hell or they're in heaven. You and I are not going to get a second chance after we die. The choices we make today in this life will determine where you spend eternity. There's a chasm that will prevent any from crossing over in either direction. Jesus is making it crystal clear that the choice you make before death is the one that matters. It's too late, he's telling him. You made your choice. It's impossible. The decisions that you made on earth, they're final now. You don't get a second chance. You don't get to reboot. And it's interesting to me that almost immediately, this man, this rich man who was relying on himself and had, had life by the tail, immediately, this man who had rejected God, who was content in his religion, and content in being a father's Abraham's son, who was content in his social status. Immediately, this man who had rejected God turns into an evangelist. He says, Abraham, if that's the case, if I'm stuck here and I'm gonna be in torment here the rest of my life, please send Lazarus back to my family. I don't want my family to experience this agony. Go and rescue them. And he says it won't work. He tells them, he says, they've had the prophets. They've had Moses. In other words, they had what we would call most of the Old Testament. They had it. And he's saying it's all in there. And if they won't listen to Moses, if they won't listen to the prophets, they won't believe and even listen to a dead man coming back to life. Their choice has been made. Boy, that's some strong stuff, isn't it? We'll come back to that in a minute. I want to just share a couple observations that I see in this story. One, we have a choice to make, and so does everybody else that's alive or ever will be alive on this earth. And the choice has to be made before they die. And that choice is going to ultimately determine their destination for eternity's sake. You know, even if we live to be 100 years old, it's nothing compared to eternity. Eternity is endless. And when I look at this story, I'm thinking, my gosh, this rich man, his future is endless in agony, torment. The mental anguish alone of knowing what could have been. What could have been. I've heard the story. I've heard about Jesus You know, looking back where we're at now, we know the whole story about Jesus. We know His death. We know His resurrection. And and you, you hear it and you reject it. So many people reject it. Or so many get comfortable in thinking they've got this down. And there's going to be a day where you'll find out, did I really make the choice or didn't I? What was I relying on? He was relying on himself. He bet everything on himself. And he lost. Later in the New Testament, we see in Titus, well actually I'm gonna turn there. I want to read a couple verses. I'm gonna read starting in verse five of Titus chapter three. Actually I'm gonna start in verse four. But when the goodness the kindness of our God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, that's the promise for us. That's the promise for anyone who would receive it and believe it and act on it. We, just like they at that time, are saved by grace. No one earns it. We're saved by grace through faith in what Christ did through His death and resurrection. And the second thing in this, this picture I see is how permanent it is. For a Christian, boy, that's awesome. For an unbeliever, it's horrible. It's horrible. There's no way out. Many of the prophets wrote things like this in Isaiah 55, verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Why would the prophet say that? Because there's going to be a time where you can't call on him and he won't be near. When we're separated from our physical bodies, death, it's too late. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, it says, I tell you now, this is Paul, I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Boy, I remember how many times I've heard and I've even said in the past, well, eventually. Or younger people than me, and that's just about everybody now. Will hear my testimony and go, well, geez, you got to have all that fun before you decided to get saved. They assume that drugs, alcohol, the party life that I lived was fun. If it was so doggone much fun, why did I cry out to God, I'm either going to kill myself or you got to save me? It wasn't that much fun. But they'll say things to me like, you got to have your fun. I'll eventually decide to accept Jesus because I, you know, you know it's true. They don't have a clue when death is going to come, and can you imagine the moment your body is separate, your spirit separate from your body, and you find yourself in agony? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? I put off the most important decision a person ever has to make in their whole life for what I thought was going to be a little fun. By the grace of God, He didn't let me die that way. And many of you here. The rich young guy is finding this out. It's permanent. In a few moments into hell, and this is the third point that I really want to make is turning into this evangelist, so to speak. In verses 27 and 28. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have brothers five brothers that he may warn lest they come here too. When you read this story, if you believe the Bible is true and if you believe this is Jesus speaking, some re- things have to register in reality. Hell is a real place. Heaven is a real place. There is a really only one way to make sure that you're going to be in heaven and not in hell. And that's surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and realizing at your very core there is something drastically flawed that would keep you out of heaven and it's called sin. And there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it in your own strength. But Jesus died so you and I wouldn't have to. He experienced death, became sin, that I would not have to pay the price for my sin. He died and was raised from the dead. And the moment that I accept that gift of salvation, surrender my life, acknowledge that I was a sinner, condemned to hell, and rightfully so, but I accept that gift, I, am, I get new clothes. I get that wedding garment. I get the cloak of righteousness draped over me because of the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. And this rich young guy is crying out to Father Abraham, please, send the Lazarus back. And it's hard for me not to think of the story of another Lazarus. Does it come to mind for anybody else? The Lazarus who was the brother of Mary and Martha. The Lazarus who laid in the grave four days and they said his body stinketh. <laughs> and the one, the Lazarus, who, who said roll the stone away. And then he very carefully and accurately said Lazarus come forth so everybody didn't get up. And Lazarus came out of the grave. And he said take the grave cloths off him and set him free. Wow! And it does say when you read that story, and many believe that guess what the religious people who had already made their choice did? They said, Hey guys, we gotta have a meeting. So they convened a meeting and they said, You know what? There's a problem here. Dead people are coming back to life. People are impressed. We gotta kill this guy. That was their solution to the greatest miracle they could have imagined. They have made their choice. And Lazarus here is crying out to Father Abraham, send Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich young man to say, send Lazarus back. And he's saying, it won't matter. It wouldn't matter. Seeing that miracle won't do the trick. In Romans 10, verse 17, it says this. So faith comes by hearing. Hearing. The Word of God. Hearing the Word of God. No miracle ever saved anybody. It's the Word of God which becomes the big miracle when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you want to read the story of that Lazarus, it's in John chapter 11 for those of you that may not be familiar. And it was a miracle that happened just not even two miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody heard about it. And so many rejected it. They crucified Christ. A short time later. You may not connect the dots the way I do, but when I look at this story, I say, this is why Victory Christian Church exists. This is why we exist. People have a choice and it's going to determine their eternal future. I have brothers and sisters, parents, relatives, friends that I don't know if they're saved. I know only God can judge the heart, but see, there's some fruit that isn't too impressive. I have lots of friends, lots of acquaintances. We have lots of neighbors in our communities that are going to go to hell if someone doesn't share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission statement as a church is to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. What does that mean? Is it just a phrase? Or does it mean something to you? Is that part of the reason why you would ever choose to come and be a member of Victory Christian Church? I hope it is. That's what we want. To help people discover Jesus, to help them experience the life that there is through Jesus. That's why we exist, not just because we all like each other and love our coffee, and that's good, but that only happens because we love Jesus, and we want to have a whole lot more people drink our coffee and love Jesus. That's why it's so important when you come in our foyer and you see those three pictures over the water fountain that says, connect, grow, serve. They're just not words that we chose to put on the wall. That's what we want to do here to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. We want to connect them to Christ. We want to share our faith with others and share the truth of the gospel With others, that the Holy Spirit could take that and have someone else accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want people to grow in their relationship with the Lord, grow in their understanding of the Word. In other words, we want to equip them. We want to see people saved, then we want to see them equipped. You know why? So they can go out and serve and get other people saved. That's our goal. I mean, all the other stuff we do is great. That's fun. It's, it's wonderful. But if all we ever do is become a church that does programs, I'm the one of the first ones going to leave this place. And I hope I wouldn't be the only one. Because it's not about programs. It's about seeing people get saved. It's about seeing people, experience, discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. That's why we exist. I hope that's why you want to come here. I hope that's what you feel and see if you're a visitor here. I hope you understand this is not a church for duffers. This is not a church to come and sit in a chair and go home and then criticize the volume of the music or the crappy preaching, but you did your job. That's not what this is. This is a church where we want to see people get saved, accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. We want to see them become equipped, gain and grow in their relationship with Jesus, grow in their understanding of the Word so that they can go and help other people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. The church, Victory Christian Church, needs to not just exist inside these walls. This church needs to walk out the door and then be the church. We need to go out and help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. Wouldn't it be horrible if that rich young guy who's in hell could come back and look at you or me that knew the truth and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? I'd have listened to you. Well, they wouldn't have. But I don't want to be the one that knows and doesn't tell. And I hope you don't either. This is why Connect, Grow, Serve is so important. This is why what we do is intentional to see people connect with God, connect with other brothers and sisters in Christ, to become equipped so that we might go out and connect others, serve in whatever way that looks. You know, the the gospel... Doing the works prepares the way of the gospel in a lot of people's hearts. Did you know that? I can think of different people where they're so lost and they don't even know about Jesus. They don't know. And they look at me. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to do stupid things. So I'll ask them how they're doing, tell them Jesus loves you or whatever. Basically just try to be nice. And guess what? All of a sudden, Just because you were nice once or twice, or maybe over months. I had a brother share with me this morning. He's been ministering to somebody who didn't want to hear for four years. Finally, there was a crack in the wall this week. All he did was go visit and be nice. And they respond. Troubles come, they call, they ask. That's what we need to be as a church. But for you to be that, you need to make sure, as I've been sharing this, if if you're here and you you don't know that you have made that choice, you don't know if you have clearly made the choice to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you need to do it. You need to do it. Eternity is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. Have you made that choice? It's not about religion. It's not about doing this, that, or the other thing. Have you made the choice? You know, it'd be easy to stand up here on a Sunday and think, oh, I know most of these people and assume that they've all made the right choice. But if there were people who said, gee, we cast out demons in Jesus' name, we did miracles in His name, And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. There could be easily many of us in here who because of lack of understanding or whatever reason have not made that choice. So I want to make sure you have an opportunity to make that choice. Laura and Sam, you guys want to come up here? I'm going to have those do something with the piano. I just want to invite you to Close your eyes, but only to block out the distractions. If you're saved, I want you to be praying like crazy for those that might not be. And if you're not certain beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Bible says, you may know. If you're not certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved, if your moment of separation from your physical body occurred this afternoon, where would you be? Would you be before the throne worshiping with all the angels and all the saints that have gone before us? Or would you be in hell? In agony? Eternally separated from God for the the rest of time? You're the only one that knows. But I want to encourage you, if you have a question in your mind, if you have a doubt in your mind, Do something about it. So I want to ask you, if if that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand as everybody else is praying for people. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to come up. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray with you. Don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Thank you. If there's some others, please raise your hands. Make a choice. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Don't take a chance. I'm not asking you to make an emotional thing here. I want you to think about this. I want you to make it based on faith, based on the Word of God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord.